a bit longer, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. Thank you guys for helping us to sing to the Lord and about the Lord this morning. Isaiah 53, I want to read the first three verses of chapter 53, this section of Isaiah this summer. Let's begin reading at verse 1. Read out loud, you follow with me. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's no word like your word. Now, as we look at this word we've just read, we would pray that the same spirit that moved upon Isaiah to write these words for us would now move in our midst and in our hearts that we would behold wonderful things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, our prayer is not simply that we would be better informed, but that by your Spirit we would be transformed. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our summer scripture memory passage is Isaiah 52:12 to 53. Uh, 5213 to 53:12. And we're looking at this passage three verses at a time. That's really how it's structured and designed. Uh, this song, if you would, of the suffering servant, these 15 verses are divided into five three-verse stanzas. We've looked at the introduction to the whole passage. We've looked at the uh, first stanza, 52.13 to 52.15. And now this morning, we want to press on further and look at the first three verses or the second stanza of this uh, song. Two things I want to make note of briefly this morning. First of all, the, the first verse that we've read speaks of the suffering servant revealed. And then the second two verses highlight most, more specifically the suffering servant rejected. Let's look at the first verse, the suffering servant revealed. And the first verse is really framed in the form of two questions, somewhat rhetorical. Uh, and yet I think both of them, for this context, uh, kind of assume a, a, a negative answer. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is Isaiah writing some 700 plus years 
before Jesus ever arrived, and he's telling us that with the arrival of Jesus is something special of, a, of the revelation of God himself. That in the coming of Jesus, in his teachings, in his actions, in all that he has done, in all that he is, it is summarized as nothing less than the arm of the Lord being revealed. What do we mean by the arm of the Lord? I would suggest to you that's a, a bit of a metaphorical description of the, of the divine power and strength of God. What Jesus is going to show when he comes to this earth, his first coming is nothing short of the, a, a perfect revelation of God's divine power and strength. In particular, of his divine power and strength to rescue, to redeem, to save, to deliver. As Carl talked earlier about, in, in terms of even help us to understand the Lord's Supper, that we were made by God. There's not a one of us here this morning who wasn't made by God, and we were made with a wonderful purpose that we would, that we would love God and honor God and obey God and trust in God. And, and, and in doing such things, we would, we would do what we were made to do, and that is to bring glory to God. And, and we were made that we might enjoy the glory of God, and yet sin has altered all of that, and, and, and sin has rendered us cut off from, the, uh, from, from God and separated from him, estranged from him, at enmity with him. We are now cursed and condemned, and such a state has left us blind and enslaved. We need a rescuing. And that's exactly what Jesus had come to do and he came to reveal the mighty, powerful, rescuing, redeeming, saving arm of God. And yet, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Or the first question in the first part of verse 1 of chapter 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? Jesus was sent from the Father. Jesus is the, the perfect image and likeness and representation of the Father. And he was sent by the Father to bring a message from the Father. And who, and who, who received that message? Who heard and, and comprehended and grabbed a hold of that message? Who, who benefited from the, the, the saving, revealing arm of God, the divine power of God to, to rescue? Tragically, the answer is not many. Very few. The very power of God was on magnanimous display in the arrival of Jesus. And humanity looked at the power of God to save and said, eh. Toward the close of his public ministry, the Gospel of John's account of Jesus' public ministry is, is, in a sense, summarized in John 12. 
and, 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 and sad, sadly, ironically, tragically, as Jesus brings his public ministry to close in John 12, Jesus quotes Isaiah 53.1 as a bit of a lament of who has believed our message, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. You see, in spite of the many signs that, that validated the, the very uh, perfect instruction and words of Jesus, and in spite of the voice of God and the descending of the Spirit at the baptism of Jesus, which demonstrated both his signs, his healings, his teachings, his baptism, all of that demonstrated the, the, the truthfulness, the veracity of who he was, that, that in this person is none other than the revelation of God's power to rescue and redeem. Israel refused to believe what they heard. Israel refused to grab a hold of the power of God to save in the person of Jesus. I find it so interesting that in a sense in John's gospel, we conclude the, the outcome of Jesus' public ministry with a quotation from Isaiah 53. Not many believed it. Not many grabbed a hold of it. The Apostle Paul will lament the same thing in Romans 9, 10, and 11 all pertain to what's up with Israel. I mean, the Messiah comes from Israel, for Israel, and Israel says, eh, and in, in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 16, he quotes Isaiah 53, lamenting Israel's uh, lack of belief. And, and yet even, I, I think we could safely bump out Romans 10 to, to maybe not solely refer to the lament over Israel's belief, but, but even the world, the nations. Why is it that this glorious arrival of Jesus. And now for us, this glorious message about the arrival and powerful salvation that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that that wasn't fully embraced when he was here? And why is it that it's not fully embraced, even mocked and regarded as ridiculous? by most even today? Well, one reason, one reason why Jesus' life and ministry and teaching and powerful arm was rejected in its, its, his own day is because Jesus offended them. Now, he wasn't offensive in that way. I mean, you know, you, you and I have met people who are just offensive people. I mean, we, we, we try to hide from them when they get here, you know. And, and just we try to, like, go the other way and avoid them. Jesus was not that kind of brash, harsh, mean, offensive person. And, and, and yet, 
who he was and what he taught uh, offended them. Let me suggest to you why he was seen as so offensive, even though he wasn't truly offensive. He was the very embodiment of the very love of God. But he arrives here, and the first thing out of his mouth is he begins his public ministry. I mean, he obviously didn't consult his media specialist. The first thing he says is, repent. I mean, if we were script writers, we would cut that one out of the, out of the script right there. It's just like, that's just not the way to do this. Not, you don't show up to a crowd of religious people, and, and, you, and you tell them to repent particularly a group of religious people who have been waiting for you to get here. Jesus came to the Jewish people, and man, they were, they were, they were loaded for bear for the Messiah to arrive, to show up, revealing the power of God to deliver them. And when he shows up and he opens his mouth, they are not impressed. They, they, they are not impressed because, well, he's blowing their categories. He thought for, they thought for sure that when he got here, the first thing he's going to do is congratulate us. I mean, we've been holding down the fort. Uh, uh, the first thing he's going to do is he's got, well... Uh, he's got special stickers for us. If, if, you know, this, is, this is my category of thought this week, been in Bible school all week. But uh, uh, in other words, he would bring treats. He would, he would pat us on the head and congratulate us for our faithfulness. Uh, he, would, he would commend us for our righteousness. And he blows an opportunity to, to enhance the self-esteem of, of a wonderful group of religious people. And he does so because their righteousness was only in the category of self-righteousness. In fact, Romans 10, which deals with this question from another angle, is why, why does, when Jesus shows up, why does, the, why does the Jewish people reject him almost wholesale? Why, why did they do that? Well, in Romans 10, 3, it says that, that they were seeking to establish their own righteousness, and so therefore they would not submit to the righteousness that he would provide for them. They didn't think he would come and tell them, you guys don't have enough righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so I'm going to have to supply righteousness for you. No, I, he, they thought he would come and say, the love of my life, you are so beautiful. I, I can't wait to hang out with a group of fine religious uh, people like you. Your, your righteousness is impeccable. No, even the prophet Isaiah later in the book, in Isaiah 64, 6, I think reveals the gist of, of what put Jesus 
in the crosshairs of the, of the religious establishment. And it says there in Isaiah 64, uh, we have all become unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags or polluted garments. They thought he was coming for them, the special righteous people, the, the people who would get stars and commendation. And he comes and he flattens them by telling them that their righteousness is not sufficient, that their righteousness is in the form of a self-righteousness, which is actually heinous and putrid in the sight of God. There's no, there's, in a sense, there's, there's no other, who wants to be talked to that way? Who wants to get dressed up and come to church on Sunday morning just to have the preacher tell them that by you getting dressed up and coming to church this morning, you are not pleasing to God in and of yourself? By thinking yourself to be a pretty cool, upright, righteous guy, God finds that altogether incorrect. And in his loving kindness, he sends his son to express that to us. Oh, here's what I don't mean by that. What, I, what I'm not trying to do is, is question whether or not God loves people like us. Oh, he loves people like us, but he loves people like us, not on the basis of our innate loveliness. He, he doesn't look at people and say, oh, that Joe, isn't he special? I, just think what my kingdom could accomplish if I added Joe to my kingdom. I mean, I would really be buffing up, beefing up the bell curve of righteousness if I was to add Joe to, to my group. And boy, I, I need Joe because without Joe, I mean, look at the rest of this church. I mean, but, but we, I really need some Joe here to really... Uh, it, no, I... While it's incomprehensible on one level, I would suggest that God loves Joe. But God loves Joe not because Joe is righteous or because Joe is lovely. In fact, what the love of God does, so unlike our kinds of love, is the, is the love of God is not response, a response to, to perceived loveliness in the object love. No, the love of God creates loveliness in what is otherwise unlovely. And when you start to figure out that that's what Jesus is up to, you, you start to figure out that, I, I don't know if I like this God. I don't know if I like this Jesus. He's just offended me. And there was run-ins all throughout the Gospels. In John 5, for instance, uh, uh, Jesus has this massive collision with the religious Elites. These were people who, if you ask them at least, they were experts in the scriptures. And yet Jesus um, chides them in John 5, 40. He says, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify about me, and you miss seeing me in the scriptures. You just see yourselves and, and how special and righteous you are, but, but you don't see in the scriptures that actually you're not righteous at all. And so one who is truly righteous must come for you 
to reveal the power of God to save you. Or in John 8, he collides with them again. I mean, they get in his face and they say, you don't understand, dude. We are children of Abraham. Mm. He says, well, actually, actually you're not. Actually, you're children of the devil. And you lie just like your father. I mean, you see, you, you, you. Jesus' public media campaign team needed to yank him out of the middle of that crowd and educate him, educate him on, on how, you, how you do social media. Or maybe not. Do, 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 do you see why, in a sense, we look at this and we're like, you're kidding me. To, uh, who has believed what uh, he has heard from us? Uh, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God himself takes on flesh and shows up, opens his mouth and begins talking. And he's rejected. He's not believed. God in the flesh is revealed. Why? Because tragically, theirs and ours. Self-righteousness blinds us. You will never see who Jesus is unless you first buy into this massive assumption. I, I'm incapable of really seeing who Jesus is because my notions of self-righteousness have blinded me from seeing reality. I, I don't see reality. I, I am so self-righteous. It it's distorts the way I look at reality and everything. It's distorted the way I look at Jesus. Jesus has come not to commend nice people like us, but Jesus has come to suggest that our assumption is not the case. Jesus came to a people to use a cultural expression of today. He has come to rescue people who believe in themselves, which is just another variation of, of, the, of the concept of self-righteousness. Why, why would you believe in yourself? What, what, do you, what do you got going for you? I know I'm, I'm, I'm so culturally out of touch with, with reality. Do you, do you see why the message of the gospel is so conceptually foreign? He's come to take my, my righteous life, my perceived righteous life, and he's come to congratulate me and to enhance me a little bit. Give me a few tips. Be a life coach, that kind of thing. No, he's come to... Reveal the power of God to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And yet, they didn't see it that way. They didn't see it that way because, tragically, self-righteousness blinds us quicker than anything. Second thing I want to say briefly, so the, in verse 1, we see something of the suffering servant revealed. 
I've already bleeded into the second point. You kind of know where I'm going with this, but we're going to try to unpack it a little bit more. It was re he was revealed, but boy, he wasn't embraced. The suffering servant was rejected, and in their self-righteousness, uh, the way they saw Jesus was greatly skewed, and uh, they were aghast and shocked by the patheticness uh, by the unimpressiveness of what they saw in Jesus. Look at verse 2. And I think verse 2, at least the first part of verse 2, even describes a bit of the growing up, the early years of Jesus. Again, not impressive. For he grew up before him like a young plant. I, I think here in this context, for he, speaking of Jesus the Messiah, grew up before him. I think in this context, he's speaking of, of God, the Father. So there was Jesus grew up, and nobody noticed him except for the Father. I mean, even on his very birth, I mean, who goes to see King Jesus when he gets here? A group of no-name shepherds who were probably the most culturally um, uh, ridiculed people in, cult, in the culture. I mean, you, you talk about a group of no names. I mean, just even that was, they, they, they were the lowlifes, if you would. They lived on the other side of the tracks. And, and then, well, we, well, some famous people from the East came. Yeah, foreigners. That's what they were, foreigners. They weren't a special people. I mean, so, but other than, other than that, there's, 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 nothing, there's nothing really splashy uh, about the early years of Jesus. Hardly anybody has a handle on who he is except for his father. It, even the notion here, like a dry, like, like a root out of dry ground. I think in Isaiah, the word root there is really kind of a reference to uh, his ancestry. Uh, so here, here is someone who is from the root of David. Uh, and it, it, like, really? This is not kingly stock. I mean, uh, what town did he grow up in? I mean, no, even in the gospel accounts, we're, we're told that, like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Or even when he begins his teaching in the early years, even, even his own family are like, what's gotten into him? Like, isn't that like Joseph and Mary's boy? I mean, just... He came from a backwater, podunk, nowheresville. It's, it's embarrassing to, to, to say that he came from Nazareth. Nazareth. Could, or, of course, if, if, if it was a St. Louis conversation, we would, what we'd want to know about Jesus is what high school did you go to? I mean, he was a North County boy. I'm a North County boy, so don't talk bad about us. I'm proud of the fact that I didn't go to Ladue High School. But, but that's where the beautiful people would go. I mean, in other words, uh, in other words this, this whole arrangement of the arrival of Jesus, his early years, but even beyond this, 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 this whole management of how do we package the arrival of the Messiah, it's not the way that we think a, a, a splashy media campaign ought to be promoted. This is not the way you promote Messiah. Verse 
first we need to beef up his origins. And secondly, we, we, we need to tweak uh, what he says when he opens his mouth. But God confounds the wisdom of the world in how he does things. Now, this ought to inform, I mean, how, how do we, I mean, as a church, we're supposed to be a people who gather here and then scatter from here that we might proclaim the message of the gospel, that we might talk about Jesus. And, um, you know, sometimes we think, well, then we need a media campaign to do this. I mean, we need to get us the, the fanciest um, uh, public relations organization, and uh, we need to put on some glitzy presentations, and we need, to, we need to rev things up and to make things splashy and bright and uh, exciting, and we, we need to get the, the emotional fervor going. And I mean, uh, and you know what? And we need us a few celebrities. If we could only get us some of the big shots of culture to, to like, speak for us. Uh, but man, just think how that would really turn the cultural rot around. If we had us a big shot promotional guy uh, that could represent our brand. Instead, we're called to gather here in humility and devotion to Jesus. Uh, we're here, to, uh, called to be here, that through the, with the, which the scripture acknowledges as it's perceived in culture, we're here to gather that through the foolishness of preaching, we might display the power of God. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? How does the arm of the Lord get revealed today? <laughs> We've got guys like this that stand up here and do this. I mean, it's like, Really, we could do better than that. We're told in the second half of verse 2 um, that he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that, that we should desire him. I mean, I mean, we needed to run him into the makeup department first. And he needs a whole new kind of suit because there's nothing greatly impressive. He's unimpressive. Uh, this is not, look, when, because of Israel's blinding self-righteousness, uh, they looked at the Messiah, the one who they've been waiting for, and they're saying, this is not the guy we've been waiting for because he doesn't look the part. Uh, they had a construct in their own head that explains why they missed seeing uh, who Jesus truly was. He was not a beautiful person like them. He was not glorious like they were. And honestly, he was the most glorious person who ever walked on this earth. But they didn't see that. They would look at him and say, that is not kingly material. They, they, they didn't see that, the, that he was the Messiah because they were unimpressed with the way he looked. Go on in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He wasn't happy Jack. He was sad Jesus. 
In part, in part, he was sad, not because he was a miserable person. We're told in Hebrews 11 that for the joy set before him, and he endured the cross. In other words, but, but his sorrow came from the fact that, and this is what the self-righteous didn't see, that, that, um, uh, that, that he was grieved and filled with sorrow because he would have to bear up under the punishment of their miserable self-righteousness. And so there was profound sorrow in his life. As he looked out over the town of Jerusalem, he wept because he knew the obstinacy of their self-righteousness. In John 14, as we're moving into the garden, he, 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 he acknowledges verbally, my soul, soul is sorrowful unto death. He, had, he, he, he experienced great distress. Um, he wept over the loss of his dear friend Lazarus because he knew that his death stemmed from the sinfulness of humanity. The tragedy and the consequences of human sin is that which he would bear up under. And when Isaiah 9 tells us that the, that the government will be on his shoulders, in part that implies that, that the full load of the responsibility of making right all that is wrong resided upon him. That's a load. Ironically, the very sinful rejection that Jesus went up against was the very condemnation that he bore upon his body in the tree. The Son of Man was a man of sorrows because of the tragedy and weight of sin. The Son of Man was filled with sorrow because of the suffering that he would have to go through because he would pay the penalty of our sin. Again, this blows the categories. When, they, when Israel thought the Messiah would come, they thought a beautiful, glorious, mighty king would show up. And instead, this humble guy shows up who is loaded with the weight of sin and sorrow, who says in John 8, right after the disciples say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He begins to tell them, now, now this Christ, the Son of the living God, will suffer many things. And Peter pulls him aside. Peter's going to straighten Jesus out. Jesus is confused about a thing or two. The Messiah's not going to suffer. See, this was a humendous category disruption. They thought that the Messiah would come and bring salvation to them by defeating their enemies. But instead, he comes and he lays down his life in an estranged twist of irony. He defeats their true enemies, not by killing those enemies, but by being killed by those enemies. They missed it. They missed it completely. Then he concludes, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And do you see the, the, the shift here? He's been speaking in the third person for the most part, and now he shifts to second person, first, first person, I should say. And we, we esteemed him not. 
when Jesus is looked at from a, a vantage point of self-righteousness, there's, there's only one conclusion when you look at Jesus. He's a loser. But actually, that perception is gnarled up and twisted and distorted. It's a result of the blinding effects of sin and self-righteousness. The one whom the world would deem a loser is actually the world's only savior. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When we see that a humble, suffering servant came, unimpressive, uh, and, and lays down his life, whom we would natively want to reject and despise and not esteem, that if, if God would be so kind, even this morning, to get into our hearts and open our eyes and show us, in fact, not a despised and um, uh, savior, uh, but uh, one who, in fact, ought to be greatly esteemed. Why? Because it's only in this Jesus that our sin is taken away and sufficiently dealt with. It is only in Jesus who has atoned for our sins, bore up under the curse and condemnation of our sins. It is only in this Jesus that we are given a righteousness, uh, not of our own, but a righteousness that comes from the life that Jesus lived, a righteousness that is fully acceptable to God, in fact, fully pleasing to God. It is only in this Jesus that we are given an entrance into God's family. It is only through Jesus uh, that we get to call the God who made us our Father. It is only through this Jesus that in turning to him, that in not in rejecting him, but embracing him, that not in esteeming him not, but in esteeming him highly, that he places his spirit in us that bears witness that we are children of God. And it is only in this Jesus that we are loved, eternally loved with a love that will never let us go. And so this morning, Turn to Jesus. See the one who looks unimpressive actually as the one who is to be most preeminent in our lives. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for who he is and what he has done. Father, rescue us from any notions that we are good enough on our own, that we are self-sufficient and self righteous, that we are capable, that we are able uh, uh, to uh, please you in our own merits. Father, flatten us, bankrupt us on those notions, and show us that we need a Savior, and show us that that Savior is Jesus. Help us to leave here relying only upon Jesus. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song.